Hey, we're starting a new series this weekend called The Art of Neighboring, and uh, it really fits hand in glove with where we've been the last three weeks. If you remember in our series on reach, we were talking about God's heart uh, for all peoples, for, for the nations, and that, uh, that concept of God's heart for all people is, is not something that simply is a New Testament idea. That really when you go to the very beginning of our story, you go to the book of, of Genesis, uh, this, the beginnings, that's literally what the, the name Genesis means, uh, beginnings or origins, that uh, we find in the story of Abraham that God has a heart for all people. He's going to bless Abraham, uh, but through Abraham, he's going to bless the nations. And then the next week, we had some workers here from the Middle East in our, in our partnership, and we heard amazing stories of how God is pursuing uh, people all around the world, specifically uh, in Jordan and in Kurdistan. And uh, we, we heard phenomenal stories about God's pursuit, how he pursues people aggressively, extravagantly, creatively, and without discrimination. Uh, that, that, that he is, he is pursuing uh, those folks. And uh, as those workers shared uh, those stories, I mean, they were fantastic stories uh, of, of that pursuit. And then last week, Brian Cadell did a fantastic job about going uh, from the global aspect of, of what we do around this place to the local part and, and talking about the, the courage it takes not only to go across an ocean, but to go across the street. And he showed that, uh, that, that great uh, video clip of this company in Colombia that manufactures clothing that stops bullets. Remember that one? Where the, where the, where the boss says, I shoot all my employees. Uh, that was, uh, it was quite the story and, and quite a risk for someone to put on those clothes and take a bullet. If you weren't here last week, we have some clothes for you to try on. We're shooting this afternoon. <laughs> now, you, you need to listen to the podcast. Brian did a, did a, did a marvelous job of just talking about this, the, the tension that we experience uh, and just making a simple conversation happen. And, uh, and, and the ability for every one of us, young or old, uh, whether, whether you know, we, we think we have what it takes or we, we think we don't have what it takes, we have the ability to influence those around us. You don't have to have a position in leadership. You don't have to have power or control. You can influence your world. And Brian did a terrific job uh, in expressing that last week. And uh, we're just going to pick up on that as we start this new series called The Art of Neighboring. And we're going to start by going to John chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, go to page 1678 in your pew Bibles, or uh, go to John chapter 4 in the Bible you brought with you. Uh, we're going to be looking at the, the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman here uh, pretty, uh, pretty quick. Um, Scotty Peterson's a seven-year-old kid. He's grown up in his house. Uh, his mom and dad, actually, he's the only kid in the house. Mom and dad want to give Scotty a jump start on life. And so, um, the, at a very young age, they've enrolled uh, Scotty in preschool so that he will get an academic head start in life. And so, uh, so Scotty is learning, you know, he's memorizing presidents and he's learning math and he's writing letters all at a very young age. Uh, and they're also, the parents are going to give little Scotty a jump start in the arts. And Scotty is taking piano lessons by age five. He's already playing some things on the piano, and uh, his parents are trying their very, very best to expose uh, their, their young son to new things, to give him new experiences, uh, so they're, 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 just, they're just giving him that jump start in life. But however, there is one area, one arena of life they do not want him exposed to, and that is in this area of, of, of unhealthy food. Scotty is going to be shielded from anything that has sugar in it. 
and no soda, no candy, nothing like that. Fam- parents are vegetarians, so he's eating vegetables, fruits, and grains, and all, th- all those kind of things. And he has been, he's been discipled in the way of, of anti-sugar. Uh, and, and the shields are up, and, uh, and, and, and Scotty's being, being taught in these ways. And uh, at least until he's age seven. At age seven, he gets invited to a birthday party. It's an overnighter. That's an overnighter. His parents thoroughly trust little Scotty, let him go to the overnighter, um, knowing that, that you know, he has this diet now. And, but he's at the party, and uh, the overnighter, and, and the mom of the other kid that they're celebrating the birthday for, uh, she's got this, uh, this enormous yellow cake that's covered in thick, chocolatey, Icing and it's sculpted. You know that uh, icing is a sculpted little waves that look like waves in the ocean, and uh, and it's so very thick. And then there's this tub of, of vanilla ice cream next to it. Candles are placed carefully in the cake, and they're lit. And a song is sung, and the candles are blown out. The candles are extracted, and little Scotty watches the other, the the, the young boy whose birthday it is, suck on the end of the candle, uh, and take that chocolate icing off of it. And then the cake is cut in that glorious yellow cake that's covered in that thick chocolatey icing is placed on paper plates, scoops of vanilla ice cream put on top of it, and uh, plates are being passed out, and a plate is passed out to poor little Scotty. And he has this little plate, and he thinks, uh, he's, well, the anti-sugar shields are going to be thwarted. The defenses have fallen. He is going to take a bite. He takes his fork. He, he dips into that, that chocolate icing and that yellow cake, cake and puts it into his mouth. And the dormant taste buds on his tongue burst to life. This is fantastic. He takes his finger and swoops it through the chocolate icing, puts it in his mouth. And the very first word that comes to his mind is, more. I must have more. And then he takes the vanilla ice cream and he mixes it with the cake and the chocolate icing and in this nirvana-like experience, he puts it into his mouth and his eyes are wide open or dancing with delight. He has tasted sugar. And when he goes back home, he's not going back with his secret. No, he, he goes back and he tells his mom and dad, and, well, he's actually kind of angry. You've been withholding this from me for seven years. And he, is, he did not know food like that even existed. And he wanted more. I want to talk to you about a story in which Jesus had yellow cake with chocolate icing and vanilla ice cream well, he didn't have that, but he did. He did do something in which he described it to his disciples who were gonna get a taste of this for the very first time, that he has had food that they did not even know existed. And when they would get a little sample of this, they too, like seven-year-old Scotty, would say more, and they would go to the ends of the earth, just declaring this good news of the gospel. That would be food for their own soul as they saw people come alive. So if you've got your Bibles, if you're there in John 4, uh, great. I want to read part of this story for us uh, of, of the day that Jesus introduced his, uh, this new food to his disciples. little context for you. Uh, John the Baptist has been preaching in Israel at this time. He's been preparing the way. That was his role. He was, uh, he was doing a lot of baptisms by the Jordan River, getting, ready, getting people ready to hear this, uh, this good news that the kingdom of God is here. And, uh, and John the Baptist has been baptizing uh, that's his name. He's been baptizing a lot of people, but now there's been a ministry shift. 
Jesus, and actually Jesus' disciples are now baptizing more people than John the Baptist. And uh, that, that really, the well-known phrase in which the, when the disciples go to, John the Baptist's disciples go to him and say, how come this is happening? Uh, John the Baptist replies by saying, I must decrease, he must increase. He's done his job, and now Jesus is gonna take this ministry and, and, and he's, he's headed to Jerusalem over the process of years to give his life on the cross and to conquer death, death through the uh, empty tomb. And, uh, and so that's, that's the context. Jesus is, is in Jerusalem, uh, and, and he's going to go to Galilee, and he's going to go through a, a neighborhood that most, uh, most rabbis would not dare go through. Um, ever had a bad neighbor? Ever had a neighbor that was just kind of tough to get along with? Um, Trina and I uh, had one of those when we were living in Hood River, Oregon years ago when our kids were much younger, and we were too. Um, we had great neighbors, Ted and Darlene. They uh, were easy to get along with and talk with, but they were building a new house and they sold their house and new neighbors moved in. And um, when they moved in, we walked over and, and got to know our new neighbors. Um, their, their property was right next to ours. There's a chain link fence that was between the two. And, um, and they moved in and, and right away we knew this wasn't Ted and Darlene, um, but you know, we wanted to get, the, get to know our neighbors. Um, when they moved in, they also moved in with three dogs. And these dogs were, uh, were, were pretty mean dogs, and our kids' swing set was right near the fence. So when our kids would go out and play, those dogs would attack, and they would jump on the fence, and they would snap and snarl and bark, and it would scare the kids. And we were scared our kids would put the fingers in the fence, and something bad would happen. But we were just trying to be patient and, and kind. And, um, and then the day came when we were sitting at our dining room uh, table having dinner. And we had this sliding glass door that looked out into the yard, and then there was the fence in the neighbor's backyard. And as we're having dinner, every time we move at the dinner table, pick up a fork, the dogs jump on the fence and bark and snarl. And we couldn't even have dinner in peace. And I, I, I'd had enough. Um, and in a very pastoral, gracious way, <laughs> I walked over to my neighbor's house, knocked on the door, and said, hey... Anyway, you can get your dogs to shut up. We can't even have dinner, and, um, and you could just see the walls go up. Um, the, the, this was not going well, and not only did walls go up, uh, four or five days later, a six-foot wooden fence went up, and they separated themselves from us. And I, mean, I, I felt, uh, you know, kind of felt guilty, a little bad, and we'd be walking through the neighborhood. We'd see them uh, from a distance, and we'd go walk to try and make some sort of uh, you know, conversation, and they would see us, and they would literally would turn around and go the other way. Uh, they want nothing to do with us, and uh, it was not good. They were avoiding us. And if you've ever seen that happen, or maybe you've experienced that, you can get a little picture of, of how the Jews and Samaritans avoided uh, each other. They despised each other, like, kind of like my, my neighbor sort of despised us. Um, they, did not, they did not want to do anything with each other. There's history to that. The Jews were exiled to Babylon. Some people were left behind, the, the poorer peasants. Foreigners were moved in, and, uh, and those people who were left behind adopted some of those religious practices of those foreigners and intermarried. And when the Jews came back from Babylon, uh, they looked at the, these Samaritans as compromisers. And so there was, there was a significant rift between these two neighbors. Now, I'm going to throw a map on the screen here, just to give you a little idea of, what, of what's going on here in John chapter 4. Jesus is down in Jerusalem, which is by Judea, and he's going to go north to Galilee. And as you can see on the map, it's a pretty straight shot. But most rabbis, because of this 
tension in the neighborhood would go around and go through modern-day Jordan, or where it says Perea over there, uh, and they'd avoid Samaria because that was those people. We, we didn't mix with those people. We kept our distance from them, went around them. Um, but Jesus, as he's going to go north from Jerusalem to, uh, to Galilee, he's going to do a straight shot. He's going to go through some people's backyards that you aren't supposed to go through. And in John chapter 4, he's in a little village called Sychar. You can see it on the map there. It's right by the A in Samaria, the second A there. And, uh, and the, on this journey... Uh, they, uh, the disciples and Jesus are pretty exhausted. They've stopped in Sychar. Jesus is very weary. He's sitting at a well. The disciples are headed to the ancient version of a Roth's supermarket uh, or looking for a plaid pantry back in the day to get some food and uh, some refreshment uh, for them as they continue on in the journey. As they're away and Jesus is sitting at the well, a Samaritan woman, one of those neighbors that you don't interact with, comes to the well and a conversation takes place. A conversation between neighbors that in which there's going to be some obstacles. We'll point them out as we go along in the story in which Jesus is going to overcome them. And, uh, and let's just follow that in the story. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 7. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Let's just stop right there for a moment because we've got two obstacles right from the beginning. First obstacle is suspicion. Why are you talking to me? In, in, the, in the Middle Eastern context, and even today, men do not initiate conversation with women or vice versa. That would be uh, to violate culture. Um, that would appear to be flirtatious even. You, you don't even make eye contact that, or smile. That would be inappropriate. Uh, so Jesus is, is asking a question, and so there's suspicion already. And then there's prejudice, why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan woman? That, that just doesn't happen. So I've got a couple, couple obstacles that Jesus is already encountering. Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. That obstacle, by the way, is, is ignorance. If you only knew. If you only knew the gift that God has for you. But sir... You don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Stop there. There's a couple of obstacles there. First one's a little bit of sarcasm. Really, where's your, where's your bucket and rope? And by the way, do you think your water's better than our water? I mean, this, this well is where Jacob and his sons got, uh, drew, drew water out. This is where they fed their flocks. There's heritage. There's history here at our well. It's the obstacle of self-sufficiency. But Jesus continues. Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water 
then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here and to get come here to get water. She's thinking free refills here. Jesus responds, "Go and get your husband." Jesus told her, "I don't have a husband," the woman replied. And now we're going to encounter the obstacle of deception. Now we're, we're, we're touching some pretty touchy ground here. I don't have a husband. Jesus, Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands. And you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. By the way, we're going to hit an obstacle of diversion here. We're, we're touching on some sensitive issues here. She's had five husbands. The man she's living with now is not her husband. There's, there's a story here. There's pain here. But she's going to divert and deflect. You must be a prophet, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? While we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped. She's going theological on Jesus here. Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then, his disciples got back from Plaid Pantry. Well, his disciples came back. They got food. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or, why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I just had cake with chocolate icing and vanilla ice cream. I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone, the disciples asked each other? Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where, uh, where you didn't plant, and others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Jesus is saying, while you were gone, guys, I had food you know nothing about, food you never even tasted, you didn't even know it existed, but once you get a taste of it, your spiritual taste buds that have been dormant are going to burst into life, and it will nourish your souls, and the food I'm talking about is people who, uh, who, who hear about Jesus and who experience eternal life. You ever had that food? 
You ever had a taste of that? Because if you have, then you know that the joy that just floods your soul. You know the thrill of seeing someone either take a step closer to Christ, or if you've ever had the, the privilege of leading him into a relationship with Christ, there's nothing like it. Years ago, Trina and I, when we were living in Kelso, and uh, we had a, a, a new couple came to our church. It was, it was a small church. Um, this couple came, and um, Jan, Jan and Rick, Jan uh, was a Christ follower. Um, Rick was a wife follower. He came to church uh, with his wife. And, uh, and, but he didn't know, didn't know Christ, and he, and he was, wasn't all that interested uh, in, in faith, matters of faith. But we, we, we struck up a friendship. He was a sports editor. Uh, he was the editor of the sports uh, department, or a local newspaper. And uh, so we had that common ground, and we loved to play golf together. We hung out, had coffee, and spent, spent quite a bit of time together. And, um, and we, uh, we just enjoyed the friendship. And Rick would come to church every week. And, uh, and, and then the Super Bowl was coming, which was a big deal for if you're writing in a, in a newspaper about sports. Super Bowl's coming. Rick invites a bunch of friends, invites people from church to come over to his house as well. And there's a big blowout Super Bowl party. And we're having a great time. The game's over. I can't even remember who was playing who. Uh, when the game was over, people left, and Trina and I and another couple stuck around to help clean up the house. And as we were doing that, uh, and well, as everyone else is cleaning the house, Rick and I were in a conversation in the living room. And he was asking me questions. This, he, it was, he was watching Christians, and it was blowing all the stereotypes. And just prompted questions to the point where I mean, it felt like we were getting to a place where, um, where he was ready to give his life to Christ. So I just asked the question, hey, Rick, is, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to begin that friendship with God right now? I clearly remember the moment. He's sitting in this big overstuffed chair. He throws his head back and goes, I can't think of one. I said, well, do you, do you want, to, want me to pray with you and you can begin that friendship? Okay. And he prayed right there on Super Bowl Sunday to give his life to Christ. And we had cake with chocolate icing on it and van vanilla ice cream, and it filled our souls. There's nothing like it. It's so exhilarating to, to be used, to be in that place where you're used by God, to, to see someone else go from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, to see someone understand that who God is, that he's kind and compassionate, he loves justice, and his heart is for all people. And when that happens, you just can't get enough. In fact, one of the first words that pops in your head is more. I must have more. And I know that we are a people who don't want to live off other people's stories. We want, we want to taste it for ourselves because that nourishes our souls. We want to taste that food. So that's what this series is all about, is helping us be a people who engage in, in neighborhoods, maybe neighbors that we've gone around, but engage in relationships in which we can have conversations. And yes, it, it's, it's, it takes courage. It's... It takes, a, it takes some, there's some risk involved. But when you're moving in, 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 in God's spirit, when you're moving with him, and you know his heart is for all people, and you know he's pursuing people, he's already at work extravagantly, aggressively, created, creatively, and without discrimination. You're just partnering up with him, and you get to see him at work, a front row seat. So we're just gonna, we're, we're just gonna start with the series with the very basics by taking a test. We're just gonna set a baseline.
And so you want to grab a, piece, uh, a pencil and a pen. You can do this. And your bulletin. Because the test is on the back of your bulletin. And by the way, I have been, been, been preparing with the team uh, on this series since March. I took this test for the very first time in March and failed it. I took it again and failed it. And, um, and so if you don't pass this, um, don't, don't feel guilted in any way. This is, just, this is something that actually, we're gonna take this test again next week. And then we're gonna take the test again the next week. Because this is all about neighboring. You see, when Jesus, he took the 613 laws that the Pharisees had, and he reduced them down into two, which I love simple. Do these, do these two things and you're, and you're good. First thing is, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Second thing, love your neighbor as yourself. And I don't think he was talking metaphorically. I think he was saying truly, literally, love people. And what a, what, what a better place, what, what better place there to start than, than with our neighbors. So here's the test. You got uh, nine boxes. The middle box there is your house. And I want you, three questions they're gonna ask. First question is this. What are the names of the people living in the eight, uh, eight homes that are closest to you, or eight apartments, all right, in your neighborhood? What are the names of the, eight, uh, of the, the people uh, living in the eight homes or apartment closest to you? Now, if you live on a farm, way out far, and you can't see any homes, um, we're all jealous, but if that's the case... Um, think about the eight people you work with or maybe people you interact with on a regular basis. Maybe you coach a baseball league or a baseball team or you interact in, 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 in music somewhere. What are the people around you that you would say, these are the people that I do, I'm, I'm surrounded by that, um, that I, I, I see most often or I, I spend most of my time next to. For most of us, it's the, the houses around us or the apartments. What are the names of those people living in those, those, those homes around us? Now, as you're writing those names in the boxes, here's what you need to know. Um, this test has been given to thousands upon thousands of Christians. The, the Art of Neighboring actually is a title of a book. It's, we have for sale pursuits. We've got permission to use that title and give this test. Um, but just this first part of this test, 95% of all Christians cannot write the names of their eight closest neighbors. Anyone willing to raise their hand and say, I can't pass the test? Just because it'll help us all feel better. Okay, look around. All right, so a lot of us can't do it. It's, it's okay. Just write however many names you can. Might be one name. Might be two names. Okay? Ready for question two? Here's question two. Whether you've got eight names or you've got one name. The second part of this test is, what is something unique about the person? Something unique about them. And by the way, it can't be they drive a red car. All right? It has to be something like they, uh, they work for the school district or, um, or you know, they graduated from McNary or they, they, love, uh, they love to go fishing or something, something unique about them that you know, not from stalking them on Facebook, but from an actual conversation, okay? What's something you know about them? So the first part is names. Second part is something unique about them. Here's the third part. This is the last question on the test. Last question on the test is, what's their story? Or another way, another way to, uh, to ask is, what, what motivates them in life? What's their story or what, what, what's their purpose in life? What motivates them in life? 
And by the way, you're only gonna get the answer to that question through spending time with a neighbor. Now, ten thousands upon ten thousands of Christians, we're talking a lot of people have taken this test, and less than 1% of all Christ followers can answer all three questions for their eight closest neighbors. How, how many of you can't answer all the questions? All right, next week we got a test. You got seven days to work on this. Learn the names of your neighbors. Have them over for dinner. Spend some time engaging conversation on a sidewalk. And, and, and then together we're gonna learn this art of, art of neighboring. And then we're gonna be praying for our neighbors. And, and here, you, when you came in this morning, you saw some doors out in the lobby. Here's what we're doing. I'm, I'm asking whether it's one name or eight names, um, write the first name of your neighbors on the doors out there, okay? Just the first name. We're just gonna write, just, if we know one name or we know two names, whatever, just write their first name on the door. N no last names, no social security numbers or birth dates, anything like that, okay? Just the first name. And in the weeks that are coming, if you are able to have a conversation, you learn something unique about that person or you learn their story, when you come back the next week, just circle the name. Just circle the name, and visually, in the lobby, we'll get a chance to see not only names, but are we, are we engaging in our neighborhoods? And, and together, we will, like Jesus, spend some time walking through our neighborhoods, or our places of work, or our apartment complexes, wherever, wherever that, those neighbors are for you, looking for opportunities to engage in conversation. And maybe fear rises in your heart as you think about that. That's okay. It, it is, it can be scary. But remember, God's pursuing people. And he's gonna use people like you to capture their hearts. So take those steps of courage. And as we do, we're gonna be praying for cake with thick chocolate icing and ice cream. Because when you get a taste of being able to spiritually influence someone who you're living next to or you're crossing their path on a daily basis, you get a taste of that, it will fill your soul. It will nourish you like nothing else because there's nothing that brings more joy than seeing people understand and put their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. You up for it? Okay. <laughs> All right. We got a test next week. Get working in your neighborhood. Even when you're driving home today, have your eyes open because God's going to put people uh, in your path.